We are pleased you joined us again in our continued study of the Sermon on the Mount. I want to say about this sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that it was a sermon delivered by the perfect preacher, the Son of God, our Savior. And just that truth should attract us to this passage and should be sufficient motivation for us to apply this teaching to our lives with the highest kind of diligence. This time, we are in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, where the perfect preacher said this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Based on this passage in Matthew chapter 6, there are five things I would like for us to study together. The motive in this paragraph is identified in verses 1 through 4 with such vivid clarity. And we studied verses 1 through 4 last time, and that motive continues into this paragraph. You remember in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6, Jesus does not teach against charitable deeds, benevolence, or any righteous behavior. The problem under the spotlight here in these paragraphs in chapter 6, hypocrisy in the form of self-seeking motive. The religious hypocrites were doing charitable deeds to be seen by men. Their intent, their motive, was not to glorify God and help the needy. They were doing charitable deeds to be seen by men for human praise, not divine approval. Well, the same thing here in verses 5 through 8. Jesus addresses the same kind of of hypocrisy, and here, as it expressed itself in the misuse of prayer, men were saying, look at me, in essence. Men were praying, but verse 5 says, to be seen by men. That's the same phrase, therefore the same motive addressed in that earlier paragraph in chapter 6. I made the statement last time, there is no provision in the New Testament, no system set up merely for human praise. Now, we can express gratitude and give encouragement to people who do good things, but our praise to them should not be their motive. There is no provision in the New Testament merely for the purpose of human praise no banquets, plaques, or anything like that. Therefore, 
to give to the needy just for the attention I gain is wrong. And in like manner, in this paragraph we're looking at this time, to pray just for the attention I might gain for myself is wrong. The unworthy motive is identified here by that phrase, to be seen by men. Verses 1 through 4, the context is charitable deeds. Starting here at verse 5, it is about the misuse of prayer. Whatever it is, to do something to be seen by men while claiming piety toward God is ill-conceived, indirect violation of what the perfect preacher said here in Matthew chapter 6. The second point I want to make, when prayer is motivated by carnal desire for human approval, the desire may be fulfilled for human approval, but God will not reward such vain repetitions. This is what is involved in the phrase, they have their reward. Well, what is their reward? It is to receive the praise and the applause of men. They get that reward, but they do not receive the approval or reward of God. You see, God looks not just at behavior, the externals, but at the motives behind the externals. The behavior, just looking at externals, may all be correct. The gift may be given to the needy and may be liberal in the amount and helpful to the recipient. The prayer, in the specific words chosen, may meet all the teachings of Scripture which pertain to prayer. But God looks behind the behavior, behind the words, to attitude, to motive, to intention. Now, let me be very careful here. This line of thought does not argue at all against the externals and getting the externals right. In our giving, we ought to be generous. In our prayers, we ought to use language in keeping with what the scriptures teach about prayer. And in the case of public prayer, language that can be understood by those who are praying with us. But in order for our giving to please God, and in order for our prayers to be acceptable, the internal motive must be right. And the motive should never be tainted by the desire to covet the praise and approval of men. If we give and pray just to obtain the praise of men, we may gain that reward. We may be applauded but we will miss the reward of approval and blessing <coughs> from the Father. The hypocrites had their reward, but the real reward from God they forfeited by their ill-conceived and immature motive. In this passage, Jesus illustrates the opposite of the practice he is condemning. He wants to take us as far as he can away from the public display of prayer coveting human approval. The point made in verse 6 about praying in your closet 
is parallel to the point made in verse 3 about not letting your left hand know what your right hand has done. Jesus, in this kind of language, takes us away from the practice of the hypocrites, and he illustrates the opposite of the practice he is condemning. So the practice he is condemning is standing in some public place on a stage, using trumpets to call attention and, and fanfare to yourself, in the synagogues, the corner of the street, praying to be seen and praised by men, that men may think well of you. Now to show how bad that is, Jesus illustrates the opposite spirit of private prayer. Now, this does not offer any argument against public prayer. Acts 4, 1 Corinthians 14, other passages teach public prayer. Jesus is illustrating how personal or individual prayer should be offered without any thought about audience. It is proper to ask people to pray for you. It is proper to tell people you're praying for them. Public prayer is illustrated in the New Testament. Jesus is illustrating how personal or individual prayer should be offered without any thought about audience or anybody being impressed by our show of external piety. In private prayer or public, our personal inner motive and attitude is critical. It is not a performance to receive the praise of men. By the way, uh, there is no physical hideaway which can secure us against pride. You can take pride with you into that closet. If you have a wrong motive, moving from the street corner to the closet will not change your heart. But if you change your heart, you will not pray with an effort to covet the applause and celebration of men. Vain repetitions depend upon human performance and are a matter of self-deceit. In the era or time when Jesus was in Palestine, there was a proclivity for long and pretentious prayers, especially among the Jewish scribes. The author of the apocryphal book Ecclesiasticus, written in the intertestamental period, urged his readers that they make not much babbling when praying. Jesus rebuked the scribes of his time, whose public prayers grew longer and more pretentious as their private lives grew more reprehensible in Mark 12:40 and Luke 20:47 and among the pagans or heathens Seneca spoke of those of his contemporaries who were guilty of fatiguing the gods with their long lengthy boring petitions so we know vain repetitions were common among both the Jews and the pagans are Gentiles. And it is worthy of notice here in verse 7, Jesus says, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. Pagan prayer 
was a response to their beliefs about their pagan deities. Maybe their thought that their pagan deities were hard of hearing or needed repetition, short-term memory problems. The imagined gods of Greece and Rome bore no resemblance to Jehovah. These gods were morally indifferent, capricious and unpredictable, and largely unconcerned with the affairs of men and not paying too much attention. In a way, the Gentiles lived in terror of their gods not hearing them, and so they would seek to placate or gain their attention by endless repetitions of great volume of ritualistic formulas. They would use incantations they thought had the power to get the attention of their gods. Oh, Baal, hear us. And they would repeat that over and over again. The example I refer to is in 1 Kings 18. Now, whether someone's background is Jewish or Gentile, whatever you have done before or heard before, here's what Jesus said, verse 7. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. For both Jews and Gentiles who used vain repetitions, the key to prayer was the number of words, the correct incantations, the volume and the length. Jesus said, don't do that. Don't do that. And he teaches and he exemplified in his life the effective prayer has to do with one's trust in God, the inner attitude of dependence on him, and the whole attitude of the worshiper. Now let me add, this teaching in Matthew 6 and verse 7 is not intended to be a stick we can use to punish men who may use the same phrases in their prayers from time to time. That's not the point. <clears throat> Perhaps some objective arguments can be made that the words and phrases in public prayer should vary, but I don't think we make a law out of that, and I don't think that's the kind of repetition Jesus is teaching against. In fact, we are told in Matthew 26, 36 to 46, when Jesus prayed, where Jesus prayed in the context of Matthew 26, he used the same words several times. The problem here is not that you use the same words you did before. Mindless repetitions just as the pagans practiced. As illustrated back in 1 Kings 18, O Baal, hear us. Prayer is the communication of what's in your heart to God. God is not like a machine who counts words. God is not like a machine who counts words. He is a father listening to his children. In verse 8, there is a prohibition and then a statement of divine truth. Therefore, do not be like them, the hypocrites who use prayer as a stage of performance. Do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask. If I am told not to be like the pagans who use 
vain repetitions. If I must not be like them, who must I be like? Jesus. I must be like Jesus. And I must know, I must believe with all my heart, the Father knows the things I have need of before I ask him. Vain repetitions not necessary. Prayer is not a matter of the number of words. Prayer is not a matter of giving God a list of what we want that he didn't have any idea about. Prayer is an expression of our faith. It is a matter of stating our gratitude and praise and maintaining a relationship with the Father. The Gentiles believed they were informing the gods of what the gods could not otherwise know. Not with our God. Prayer is seen in the scripture as a function of faith and an expression of the affectionate heart to God, not a performance. It has to be real. Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man... I, I messed that up. Let me start over again. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, for I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. That's the God we pray to. I'm going to take just a brief break that you will not see. I'm going to be back with Matthew 6, 9 through 15. I'm back after a brief, good little coffee break. Matthew 6, 9 through 15. Now, Jesus previously has said, don't pray like this. Well, the question would then arise, how do I need to pray? What constitutes legitimate, heartfelt prayer to God? Jesus gives an example. The model prayer, that's what we sometimes call this. Matthew 6, 9 through 15. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. A simple approach to this is, after Jesus said, don't pray like this, he essentially is saying, pray like this. He's giving us a model. It is not intended to just memorize and repeat word for word, but it's intended for us to better understand the elements in acceptable prayer 
from the heart, not prayer on a stage to impress people, but prayer from the heart to God. And notice that's how this begins. It is addressed to God, not to an audience for praise from the audience. It is addressed to God, our Father in heaven. Prayer is communication to our Father. Now, when you open this book, the New Testament, <clears throat> and you read what this book says, God is communicating to us. But there is two-way communication. Prayer is one way we communicate to our Father. We certainly communicate to Him about our lives through the way we live. We communicate to Him in words through prayer. The examples of prayer in the Bible are examples of people communicating to God. Abraham in Genesis 18, Moses in Exodus 33, Daniel and Jesus himself and uh, Peter in, uh, in Acts 12 and verse 5, he offered to God a prayer. Uh, Philippians 4 in verse 6, prayer is man communicating to God. Prayer is not just a set of memorized phrases that sound good to the ears of men. It isn't just a bunch of neat little religious sounding expressions for use in public services. It is what you have thought about and what's in your heart that you're saying to the Father. Abraham prayed, his servants prayed, Moses prayed. All those examples in the Bible plainly show, put right before us, the effectiveness and the power and the importance of praying to our Father in heaven. Now, notice that phrase, your kingdom come, thy kingdom come, in the older translations. We know that Jesus established his kingdom. John the Baptist announced it, and Jesus established his kingdom, and we become citizens in that kingdom when we obey the gospel. It is also called the church, the body, the family. But I want us to think about something else concerning this word kingdom. The root idea is the sovereignty and rule of God. When I submit my life wholly to the rule of God by obeying Jesus Christ, I'm doing the will of God on earth. The will of God that originates in heaven finds its place in my life. And that's what's captured by what Jesus says here. Your will be done. Your will be done. Uh, that's a prayer that we are engaged in his will. And that should always be our prayer. Someone said, prayer must never be an attempt to bend the will of God to our desires. Prayer is always an attempt to submit our will to the will of God. The attitude, thy will be done, should be in all of our prayers. 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. In prayer, we request daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us what we need. 
God feeds us in two ways, one far higher than the other. Through his word and our use of his word, he feeds us spiritually. We should desire that nourishment, receive that from God, and make that the subject of prayer. The other way God feeds us is physical nourishment, and that too can and should have a place in our prayers, thanking God for all we have. We need to stay alive physically and spiritually, and in our prayers, we speak to God about those needs for nourishment and life. In prayer, we ask for forgiveness. Forgive us our debts. I want to talk about that. I think we ought to understand in our present economy, we ought to understand that phrase real well today because the vast majority of us know all about debts. Maybe it can be said we owe all kinds of money, house, car, appliances. We can use credit cards for everything today, even groceries. The nation is way in debt. Churches sometimes are in debt, and most of us owe some money. Can you imagine calling the bank that holds your card and the machine answers, of course, and it says, punch one if you want to check your account, punch two if you want to transfer funds, punch three if you want to speak to a representative. But then what if it said punch four if you want to have all your debt forgiven? We'd wear out number four. We, of all people, know about debts, and we can only imagine what it would be like to have all our debts forgiven. Well, we are indebted to God. We have sinned against him. We have an account in heaven. And as we sin, we just keep piling debt on top of debt. But the good news is God in Christ has offered to forgive us. We can be forgiven of our debts initially when we are buried with Christ in baptism. Thereafter, through repentance and prayer, we can petition God with these words. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. John said in 1 John 2, 1, My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In prayer, we ask for deliverance and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or from the evil one. Not only do we have debts, and all of us would admit that, we also have weaknesses, and we are stalked and tempted by the devil, the old lion who seeks to devour us. We need help. We need strength. We need good influences in our lives to lead us away from sin and deliver us from the great deceiver and adversary who threatens us daily. In dealing with life and meeting the daily challenges, we need wisdom. And James speaks to this in James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. We need God's help resisting temptation. And that's what this is about, God's help. Then it says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory 
forever in some translations. One of the dangerous things about our world is so many do not hold the name of God in high esteem. Let me say something about that word, hallowed. That word is not so much a particular name of God, but a description of the nature, character, and personality of God. To hallow the name of God means simply to hold him in reverence, to place him in that special, high, and holy place where he belongs as the creator. So our prayers are to begin not with a concern for ourselves or a concern that others approve of our prayers, but with a concern that we honor the Father. Prayer should begin with praise. And just as we ask God to forgive us, Jesus tags on a lesson for us in verses 14 and 15. Just as we expect God to forgive us, and we appreciate God forgiving us, we ought to be forgiving people. So we've studied in Matthew 6 two paragraphs that concern what Jesus is teaching us about how not to pray and how to pray. So I conclude with this. Do you pray according to what Jesus taught? Do you address the Father with reverence and respect? Do you acknowledge his kingdom and the supremacy of his will? Do you ask for daily bread, then express the gratitude of your heart? Do you ask for pardon? Do you extend pardon to others as you expect God to extend it to you? Do you talk to your Father about your weaknesses, your temptations, do you do all of this in an attitude of respect of God's power and glory and sovereignty and will? Do you pray? Do I pray according to what Jesus said? We certainly hope this helps you, and we want you to go back and read this again for yourself, by yourself, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15.